Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Potters. Welcome to the Limehouse Podcast. Now, um, as previewed in the last episode, Will is not here and I have taken over. This is not some sort of a coup. Will will be back next week, but uh, simply Will got married. And since he got married over the summer, he's been spending far, far too much time on this podcast and not nearly enough time focusing on his wife. So uh, he's gone on a honeymoon. He's enjoying life right now, we hope, in the south of Spain, um, and entrusted, maybe somewhat foolishly, the podcast to me. So, hope you all leave um, good reviews, and maybe it will give me the opportunity to do it again. Um, so, where are we this week? Well, what's happened? Well, it's just another week of disaster on planet Brexit. Things are getting so serious now, so deadlocked. You know, uh, we had the European Union Summit, European Council this week, whereas it's, the Brits were very much hoping that we would move on and we would start discussing a trade deal with the European Union, a trade deal for when we leave the biggest and most deep and most important trade deal the world has ever seen, which is the European Union itself. We want to negotiate an alternative trade deal, but we can't get there because we still haven't passed the hurdles of negotiating um, the status of EU citizens in the UK, what's going to happen to the Irish border after we leave, and the so-called divorce settlement. How much money do we owe to the European Union because we will be leaving? Now, those things should have been fairly easy things to sort out, um, particularly uh, set against the far, far more complicated tra uh, negotiations that are going to have to go on on a trade deal. The UK and the Irish have, and the, the Europeans all say that they don't want a hard border in Northern Ireland. They all say that they want to make sure that EU citizens are secure and know that they are welcome here and are welcome to stay. And on the so-called divorce bill, the UK government has said many, many times that the UK is a country that pays its obligations. So what on earth is going on? Why have we not progressed further? Well, things are getting so serious that Theresa May, in the last minute, jumped in and accompanied David Davis to Brexit to have dinner with Juncker early in the week. And this comes after actually a period where um, May has been increasingly centralizing power and centralizing uh, control over the Brexit negotiation process. 
um, senior civil servants from the Department of Exiting the European Union have been brought into number 10 so that they come report directly to May instead of David Davis. Now, this actually is incredibly concerning because if you speak to anyone who ever worked with Theresa May, and there's people who were members of the Lib Dems, for example, who worked with her in coalition and uh, ministers and MPs, um, what they frequently say is that she's incredibly indecisive and is extremely cautious and is not someone that takes prone to taking um, swift action. And, and that's what we really need right now. So you know, we're in a situation where more and more power is being centralised to a person who is hesitant uh, and slow, and we're ending up with inertia in a time-limited negotiation process. So what does this mean? It means we could end up heading towards the disaster scenario, which is leaving the European Union with no alternatives in place. So what we've what have we heard the last couple of weeks, we've had people uh, going in front of select committees saying that aircraft will stop flying the day we leave the European Union if we don't sort these things out. And the Brexit brigade uh, in their normal kind of off-the-wall type crazy approach to life um, are now kind of saying, yes, now's the time to put our pedal to the metal, to push down harder on the accelerator as we head towards the cliff edge. You know, they are really cheerleading and getting behind this idea of a no deal, which is just so beyond fathomable and so beyond anything that was sold to the British public during the referendum. Um, it really is a travesty that they think that this is a good thing to push. Now, in the context of all of this, uh, the interview that we have this week on the podcast, I hope will be of great interest to you, but it's also very timely in that sense, um, because we're interviewing... Joe Morn QC. Joe Morn is actually a tax barrister. I've known him for several years because of my line of work campaigning in the area of anti-tax avoidance. But since the referendum, Joe has become increasingly active in the kind of Remain movement. Um, and together with Molly Scott Cato, a Green MEP, he has been challenging the government to release the impact studies that they have done on Brexit. So as we are now in a period which is huge amounts of uncertainty, great deal of, you know, real prospect that we could be crashing out of the European Union without a deal if things don't radically improve in terms of our position vis-a-vis -vis Europe. You know, we really need to know what this means. We really need to know what the government thinks the outcome of all of this might be. If we do crash out with no deal, what does that mean for jobs in this country? Now, the government have looked into all these things, but are refusing to tell the public. And Joe, along with Molly, is hoping to force their hands and going to the courts to seek an order that the government will disclose this. So, you know, I think a real hero in that sense, of putting himself on the line in that way and seeking to do this, and um, I chat in this interview with him about what exactly is going on with this legal process, uh, why it's important, um, but also his views about Brexit in general, why the debate has the character that it has and this kind of increasingly angry uh, lacuna of fact 
um, debate that we're having and what he thinks are the prospects of reversing this ongoing disaster. So, have a listen, Joe Morn, uh, total legend, and um, hope you enjoy it, and uh, I'll see you on the other side of it. So, um, David Davis spoke to the um, Commons Select Committee on Brexit back in December, um, and in an attempt to impress upon the Select Committee um, what a serious man he is and what um, sterling work the government was doing to protect uh, the country against um, uh, the unlikely possibility that Brexit resulted in harm. he mentioned that, um, he said 57, I think, sectorial studies had been produced uh, and we understood very well um, what was going to happen. Um, and uh, on other occasions, he's referred to these sectorial studies. Um, alongside those, there are, or at least there may be, some um, regional studies so a journalist in Yorkshire has asked for the Yorkshire one and the Scottish government, I think, has asked for the one from Scotland. And I imagine there have been equivalent requests from other countries, as well, uh, other parts of the country as well. And um, in relation to the regional studies, um, civil servants are saying um, we're unable to confirm or deny that such things even exist. Um, and that's... Kind of things- do you think might be in them? I mean, is it with the sectoral studies? I mean, you're talking about, let's say, the fishing industry or fishing how... industry, agriculture, um, motor manufacturing. Um, apparently, every sector of the economy affected by international trade. So basically, most people, most mm. people's jobs. This is about really. If you yeah, if you have a job, um, it's a pretty good bet. Uh, that you will learn something about your future prospects um, should uh, we manage to secure the release of the Brexit, uh, the sectorial studies. The interesting thing about the regional studies is that Philip Hammond has actually admitted uh, that these regional studies exist. And so um, I was a little puzzled by the suggestion from civil servants that it would harm the national interest uh, to confirm that Philip Hammond wasn't lying when he told the Commons that these regional studies existed. But that seems to be the government's position. Um, as we know, we are living in strange times. And, and you've asked for these studies already, and so the sectoral studies, they've said, uh, well, you know, we're not telling you if they even exist. But uh, the regional studies. Sorry, regional studies. Regional so studies. Yeah, the government's position in relation to the regional studies is uh, we're not going to tell you whether Philip Hammond is a liar or not. Um, we're not going to tell you whether they exist or not, even though he's confirmed that they do. Um, in relation to the sectorial studies, the government's position is, 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 is yes, we have them, but to release them to you would um, cause harm, it would weaken our negotiating position. And that's a sort of a slightly um, odd thing to say, because fundamentally we think that these things are impact assessments. So you look at a particular policy and you ask yourself the question, well, what impact will this policy have on fishing or car making or whatever it is? Um, And we know that um, uh, government commissioned um, an impact assessment of Brexit on the economy in the run-up to the referendum, Uh, and it released it. Uh, Treasury produced those 
those um, short and long-term models of the effects of Brexit on the UK economy. And it was then expedient for government to release them. Um, We also know perfectly well that the EU um, is itself capable, surprisingly enough, of carrying out um, basic economic modelling. So the other side of the negotiation knows the score anyway. It's just us that's being kept in the dark. Yeah. So government knows. Um, The EU um, probably already knows, but if it um, doesn't know and wants to know, it can perfectly easily find out. Um, uh, The only people who don't know are the likes of... um, uh, those of us who are, you know, working in motor manufacturing, um, uh, we cannot know um, what uh, Brexit will mean for our livelihoods. But um, everyone else, all the important people, can they can know. It's just, the just us. Yeah. That's right. The the the, the, the establishment, the Brexit elite, Brexit establishment, uh, they can know. Um, but uh, you and I um, uh, have taken back control, but not of that. But I don't want to descend into to legal geekdom for anyone who would be listening to this, but what I've been involved previously in a, in a, a case about um, disclosure of information through the Information Tribunal, uh, and it was to do with the demolition of a, oh, just near your, near your house, in fact, in Southwark, um, in the Haygate estate. And that took about two years for the, where the campaigners started campaigning for this information to them actually being it being released and the court judgment coming in their favour. Um, is, are you, you know, this process that you're starting, is it going to be that long or is this, um, you know, are, is there a chance that we could, even if you win the case, is there a chance we can get this stuff before Brexit happens? What's the process in this one? So, um, I mean, you're right. There is um, a Freedom of Information Act uh, that act gives you certain qualified rights to see information, and people have made requests under the Freedom of Information Act for this stuff and been knocked back, and they have a long and um, difficult and tedious battle ahead of them. Um, but we say that um, there's a, just a basic common law right um, to this material as well. So... English law outside the statute gives you the right to see this material. And we also say, um, ironically, that um, European Convention on Human Rights also gives us the right to see this material. So we don't need to use the sort of cumbersome Freedom of Information Act um, uh, procedure. We can use a much, much faster procedure. And as you identify, that's really, really important where you have information which on any view is of profound public interest and importance and where the um, pertinence of that information degrades quickly over time. In those circumstances, we say um, there is a compelling case for the use of a legal mechanic that that is not um, so slow as to deny um, uh, the fruits uh, of that mechanic of all um, value. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, in the case of the Haygate, like by the time they got the information, their homes have been demolished. <laughs> so it really was. They will have read those um, that material um, from um, Bromley or um, wherever people who had previously enjoyed living in Southwark were um, shipped off to by Southwark Council and Peter John and his um, uh, wisdom. 
um, but it would not have provided them with much assistance in their um, battle to continue living in the homes where they and their families mm-hmm. had lived sometimes for generations. It seems to me that the kind of information and the denial of information is a part of the political strategy of the Brexit brigade. You know, there seems to be a kind of calculated strategy to try and prevent as much information coming into the public domain. And I sort of experienced this myself when I was in the election and I was standing against Kate Hope. It was really interesting. I was like, really up for having a debate and I just thought it'd be really, you know, you know, take on those arguments and to kind of challenge them in a public forum in the election and found that she just had no desire whatsoever to talk about uh, the issue, um, having spent, you know, two, three years non-stop campaigning on this issue when it actually came to having a debate about it, she didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and this, what you're experiencing here, seems part of this same programme, is that actually what they've done is they've won and they just want to defend their position at all costs by denying any kind of discussion or debate about it. Well, look, if, you, um, if you're wanting to uh, cause the country um, uh, to uh, do what um, substantially every um, independent recognised expert in the world thinks will cause um, enormous harm to the country, and your argument for doing it is fundamentally one of faith, um, the very last thing that you want to do is engage with biologists on the question of whether by jumping off that cliff um, you will grow wings. Um, That is antithetical to the way in which you are presenting um, the virtues of of walking off that cliff edge. Um, It is a matter of faith, uh, not of um, heretical expert opinion that leaping off the the cliff will cause these um, wings to to grow. Who needs a biologist? So what do you think that exit from Brexit to coin the term would look like? I mean, it's a matter of convincing that that group in the middle who aren't fundamentalists on one side or the other, and enough of them that it's such a bad idea that public the public start to demand a chance to to change course. Fundamentally, um, this is a question of um, continuing democratic mandate. Um, And my view is that if public opinion turns against Brexit, we will not leave. Um, The question, the answer to which I do not know is, will public opinion turn against Brexit? And you can look at the polls, and there was a very good piece um, by Peter Kellner just a few days ago, published in Prospect, in which he looks at the polling and he looks at three phases of the polling, one in the immediate aftermath of the the referendum, where basically the polls were static, uh, then a sort of period after that where they began to show um, modest movement, and now a third phase where he thinks... Uh, we may be at the beginning of quite decisive movement. Um, The reason that I'm um, optimistic uh, about the future is that um, we have already, I think, quite um, profound chaos. Nobody um, looking at what's happening at the moment with anything like a... um, uh, an engaged, a sentient eye, can look at what is happening and think, well, ah, this is going all right. 
um, let's crack on. Um, everybody who's interested, everyone who's engaged will be thinking, my God, this is really quite worrying. No one campaigned um, for leave on the basis that we would leave the EU without any free trade agreement at all. We were promised sunlit uplands. Um, we were promised uh, the having and, and eating of cake. We were promised the easiest deal in history. Um, this does not feel much like that. And um, if you are um, hitting those levels of um, chaos already, uh, and you bear in mind that uh, March 2019 is still um, 15 months off, you think, is the government really going to be able to sustain um, any um, uh, majority in favour of leaving or even a, a, a modest minority in favour of leaving um, for the next 15 months? I find that quite difficult to believe. Um, you know, the, the vultures are, are circling and the um, Dexy case that you mentioned is one, and then there's another case that I'm bringing against the Electoral Commission. We think that they've leave overspent quite significantly. We're quite confident about our prospects of winning that case. Um, there are secret witnesses um, who may give evidence. I've just been sent a leaked Treasury report. Um, there's a lot going on, even in my own tiny sphere. Um, that causes me to think that things are likely to get more rather than less difficult for government. But then you've got some of the Brexiteers whose response is like, yes, it is chaotic, yes, the negotiations are going badly, so let's just walk away from the whole thing. No deal will be fantastic. I mean, there's a letter that's gone in yesterday, isn't it, from a group of MPs saying, uh, you know, no deal is fine. Extraordinary. I was sitting next to John Mills, um, at the IPPR yesterday afternoon um, as he talked um, with apparent passion about um, the plight of young people um, and about the need to secure um, increased um, real wages in marginalised communities. And then um, I get home after that event and his name is at the bottom of this letter demanding that we bring what substantially every independent forecaster in the world thinks will be um, enormous economic turmoil to the United Kingdom for a prolonged period of time. And I think, John, what, what's going on, mate? How can you be saying these two things? Where's the... Um, how, how, how are you not able to link them together in your mind? So anyway, there's John Mills and there's Kate Hoey and then there's a bunch of, um, you know, the usual um, hard-right Fruit Loops. Um, but... Um, the truth is um, that the best way for us to remain is for them to get what they want because um, if uh, Theresa May were to do what they ask and announce that we will no longer negotiate with the EU, uh, as a matter of European Union law, we're still in the EU until March 2019. Um, but meanwhile, the country goes into meltdown. Complete chaos. Complete chaos. Mm. Everyone will know what... Um, no deal means. Um, we will know that um, as we plummet to the ground that the, the wings that we were promised, he says, looking at his shoulders, um, do not appear to be sprouting. Um, and I think in that world, um, the pressure on the government to reverse course um, will be absolutely intolerable. I, I think mean, that's, well, in, that's the most likely um, route to remain. But in that, in that world... 
surely the European Union turn around and say, these guys are just, um, we're not bothering anymore. And if the government came crawling back after another 10 months and said, this is just too much, we're getting absolutely beaten up in the world economy, please have us back. Could the EU not just turn around and see, sorry guys, you've just pissed around for the last two years, you've caused so much chaos, you're causing all this chaos internally, we're better off without you. But if I'm in the EU, um, if I'm Guy Verstadt, if I'm Chabannier, um, if I'm Emmanuel Macron, I'm looking over at um, the United Kingdom and I'm thinking, my God, our neighbours are, um, are having a, you know, are having a bad day. Um, but they are still our neighbours and um, they will be hearing um, the plaintive cries from um, those of us who uh, recognise um, which way is up. Uh, and they will um, be very, very interested, it seems to me, in the same question that I'm interested in, which is um, what is the continuing um, democratic mandate for uh, the United Kingdom to leave the EU? And if they see that public opinion turns and turns decisively, and they see that politicians um, react, as politicians tend to, to that decisive change in public opinion. Um, they may well say to the UK, we want you to have a, a, a referendum um, so that there is a very, very clear mandate now for the United Kingdom to remain in the EU. Um, or you have to have a vote in Parliament and we want to see a strong majority in Parliament for remaining. Um, if the EU gets um, comfortable with the notion that when we say we want to revoke, um, we really mean it. Um, we now see that the interests of the United Kingdom um, are better served by us um, playing nicely with our um, powerful friends and neighbours, then they will also recognise that the interests of the um, other 27 are themselves strengthened by the same pooling of sovereignty that we uh, benefit from in a globalised world. Okay, yeah, well, let's hope so. Listen, I know you've got to go, um, so we'll leave it there. But thanks very much for spending your time to talk, and maybe do it again as the things progress. That would be splendid, George. I feel very much uh, I'd look forward to that. Fantastic, thanks That was Joe Moore. Hope you enjoyed listening to that, guys, uh, guys and girls. You know, I think Joe's really fantastic in the sense that he is really optimistic about our country and the future of our country and has a vision about how we can get out of the mess that we currently find ourselves. And that's really, really important because if you're somebody like me who thinks that Brexit is a total unmitigated disaster then you need to think that there's a way out of it you need to have that hope otherwise there's nothing uh, and the world is a very very depressing place however on I have to say on my part I'm a little bit less optimistic um, than a lot of people I think that things can get a lot worse before they get better and we often 
don't like thinking about how bad things can get. We kind of discount that possibility for, you know, the obvious reasons that we don't want to think about the world being a bad and horrible place. But, you know, I, I told Joe after the interview, um, I was born in Croatia when it was still part of Yugoslavia. And recently I visited Serbia for the first time and was getting a bus back to Croatia afterwards and was sitting on the border for an hour and a half and realized that this was a border that when I was born didn't exist. Um, we were all part of the same country back then. And now we have the border of the European Union um, splitting what was previously a borderless transition area. Now, what does that sound like? Uh, clearly, um, the United Kingdom and Ireland were one country a very, very long time ago, but we do now have a common border area and we do now um, have a free movement between the north and the south of Ireland. And we could be in a place where we don't have that free movement anymore. And previously, when we didn't have that free movement, we had a civil war raging in that part of the world. And we all know that actually Brexit can be very bad um, for outcomes in a place like Northern Ireland. We could see the return to violence. We could see all sorts of things. And I think we sometimes, as people who uh, believe in the Remain cause, like to think, well, things will never get that bad, people will kick up against it, and so on. But if we look at the experience of the world, things can get very bad. Things can get very, very bad before things get better. In Yugoslavia, uh, at the time of the breakup of Yugoslavia, Nobody wanted a civil war where over 100,000 people died. Nobody wanted the total economic disaster that war brings with it. And nobody wanted those things apart from a very few slightly psychotic people um, and people who are frankly evil. The vast majority of people do not want these kinds of awful things being inflicted on their country. But that doesn't mean, because the majority of people don't want something, that it isn't going to happen. And that's why I think we really need to fight hard against Brexit. That's why we need to focus all of our attention on how we can turn this super tanker around, how we can turn this disaster around. And initiatives, things like that um, people like Joe are doing uh, and others are a really important part of that and they really need to be supported so i hope you've enjoyed listening to the show um will will be back in the saddle presenting and and putting it all together next week if i'm a good boy i might be let loose on it once again um i've really enjoyed doing this hope you've enjoyed listening and i shall be speaking to you again soon
She thinks she wakes me up to bring me down. 